you know, what I've learned in life, just from my observation, is that people don't keep track of your wins and losses so much as whether or not you got back up and kept fighting. So why would two guys leave comfortable jobs, move across the country and start a business in an industry they don't know, a place they don't know, and could it be successful? We're Dale and Brian Carmi. Join us as we share our story and inspire you to become people of impact. Welcome to the Impact Without Limits podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Impact Without Limits podcast. This is Dale Carmi. I'm sitting here with my brother, Brian Carmi, and today is one of our special episodes. We have a special guest, Damon West. Damon, welcome to the podcast. Guys, thanks a lot for having me on your show, man. It's great to be here. A nice, chilly morning in Ohio. Oh, yeah. Fall, yeah. fall in Ohio does that. So, Damon, uh, we had the honor of having you in to speak to the Forever Lund team a few years ago. I think we said it was beginning of 2020. It was. It was, I mean, like, literally two months before the pandemic started. That's right. The whole it world is. changed. But I originally found you through John Gordon, I believe. He had his... Uh, one day in leadership event, and you know, I watched a couple clips on there, and your story captivated me just in a couple minutes. And so, uh, I know some of our audience has probably heard the story, some of them haven't. Can you give us just a little bit of background about this story of the coffee the, the, bean? The Damon, yeah, the yeah, Damon the coffee story. bean, yeah. It's just, I mean, and like, like John Gordon, first of all, man, that guy, uh, he's done more for me to connect me into the world of my new life that I have than anybody else. He's my my best friend, my mentor. Um, and just to know that you found me through John, man, that makes makes my heart feel good because John's a great guy. So the story of the coffee bean, I came from a great family. I grew up in this little town called Port Arthur, Texas, down where Louisiana and Southeast Texas meet on the Gulf Coast. A little blue collar town, a little refinery town. Great family, uh, great athlete, three-year starting quarterback for a 5A school, scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. So things look like they're going well. By the time I'm 20, I am the starting quarterback for a Division One team in America, and I really kind of feel like I have arrived. I mean, you know, my dad is a sports writer. My mom's a nurse. Um, they're at the games. And this one game on September 21st, 1996, my entire world changed. They're at, they're, it's against Texas A&M. They're in the stands, College Station, Texas. Beautiful Saturday afternoon for college football, and we love our football in Texas, just like y'all love. We it. love it in Ohio you're too. You're right. At the Ohio State. Well, that's, right. that's right. You get, I've spoken to Ohio State's football team last year, and you've got to put that the in there. You do. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no M's in that building. No, there are yeah. nowhere. I learned that the hard way. I'm like, hey, where that, are the M's? That, that team up north. <laughs> <laughs> that team up north. So, but back to the story. So I was uh, playing Division One college football, man, and, and I'm the quarterback, and we're playing against A&M. Third play of the game, I go down with a career and an injury. Never play college football again. And, mm. And I get up to this fork in the road in life, and I make a lot of wrong turns, and they all have to do with drugs. I got into drugs because I couldn't deal with life on life's terms. And that's a lot of reason why drug addicts go back into their addiction is dealing with life on life's terms is tough. And I turned to cocaine, ecstasy pills, but but I was a very functional addict, graduated college in 1999, moved off to Washington, D.C., got a job working in the United States Congress. I worked for a guy running for president. Then I went to work for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was in 2004 at UBS when I was training to be a stockbroker that another broker sees me sleeping at work and introduces me to methamphetamines. Mm. And the introduction of methamphetamines to my life, what well, was 
it turned my world upside down because meth is it's just the most evil, most destructive drug, most addictive drug. And I started giving everything away because that's what addicts do. We give everything away. And I say we because I'm an addict, but I'm in a program recovery today. I'm in AA. I'm in a long-term program recovery. I don't I don't speak for AA, but in AA, we have to live in a program recovery. And I didn't have that back then. And what I've learned about addicts, and this could be just in just addicts to drugs and alcohol. This is addicts to anything, food, shopping, gambling, sex, whatever it is that can take you away from the most important things in life. Addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors. Normal people, focused people, driven and successful people, they'll give up their behaviors to meet their goals. But addicts don't do that. So I started gradually giving everything away. My job, my home, my car, my savings account, my family, my tethering to God. Within 18 months of the first hit of that pipe of meth, I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. I was homeless. And then I started becoming a criminal. Um, Property crimes, breaking into storage units, breaking into cars, shoplifting. And then I started breaking into people's homes. This is the crime of burglary. Very serious crime, too, because, I mean, you know, my victims, I didn't just steal their property. I stole their sense of security. Right. I, I don't know if they'll ever get that back. So three years, these burglaries go on. They call them the Uptown Burglars, a very high-profile crime spree in Dallas. It's the nicest neighborhoods of Dallas are being broken into. And on July 30th, 2008, Three years after the Uptown burglary started, a Dallas SWAT team took me down in Dallas County. And I mean, dramatic SWAT team raid. They take me to Dallas County Jail where they lock me up in there. I've got a, I've got a bond of $1.4 million. I'm like, I'm public enemy number one in Dallas. They've got me behind bars. And, um, you know, one of the first calls I made to my parents from Dallas County Jail, I was scared. I've never been in this environment before. And I remember calling home and my dad, who I've never seen cry, I heard him crying and man, I knew I broke my dad. My mom gets on the phone and, and she's, she's telling me that they love me unconditionally. And I didn't really know or understand what unconditional love was till this whole process played out because man, I put that to the test. I mean, because a, a parent loves a child in a way that, you know, there's no other love like that. And I really tested my parents to see how much you could love a child that messes up because the mistakes that I made and the path I took them on, I tell people all the time, I didn't just lock myself up when I went to prison. I locked up my family, and they they were locked up with me. They went to prison with me. Because 10 months after my arrest, I went to this trial. The, the Dallas County brought me to trial. It was a six-day trial, criminal trial, long trial for crimes that were non-aggravated, meaning no one was ever home, never saw my victims. They never saw me. No one got hurt during this crime spree. There were no physical victims. But at the end of that six-day trial, the jury hated my guts, and I gave them every reason to hate me, and they sentenced me to life in prison, 65 years in prison. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it was like the rock-bottom moment in my life. And um, my mom has this really important conversation with me right after the trial was over, and she's telling me, you know, no gangs and no tattoos. You come back as the man we raised or don't come back at all. Well, I don't know how I'm going to do this because— I'm just curious. Did your mom have any experience with prison or understand it? I mean, for her to say no gangs and no tattoos, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. Was that just coincidental or did she know enough about prison to to say that? My mom is a very big uh, watcher of like prison movies and stuff like that. Prison shows. (laughs) It's funny when I, when I paroled out of prison later on after this, you know, we'll get back to, we'll get to that part of the story later, but I lived with my parents for the first two years I'm out. And I mean, you know, almost nightly, my mom would call me in the living room. Hey, Damon, watch this. And then she's watching Locked Up or 60 Days In. Or, and I'm like, Mom, I just left this place, you know. But she was, like a lot of people, I think, fascinated about prison culture. 
And so she understood enough of prison culture from watching TV of what it was like. And that's why she's saying, hey, look, you know, no gangs, no tattoos. Come back as the man we raise or don't come back at all. Can you explain the no tattoos just a little bit? Because that's more than just she didn't like tattoos, right? I mean, yeah, that has to do with prison culture. That has to do with prison culture, one, because, I mean, she doesn't want me coming back with tattoos on my face and teardrops and all this other or just damaging my skin like that with these t- it, because and she also understands my personality that if I get one tattoo, I'm going to get a thousand tattoos. You know, that's my personality. I do think full speed, but she's also a nurse, Brian. And she also knows that with tattooing and dirty needles comes things like hepatitis C and HIV, which is rampant in prisons with tattoo. She's a nurse. So she also understands that there's a level of health safety involved with getting a tattoo. And she, I mean, she said, that's one of the main things that she's saying, don't do this because you can get something that you'll never be able to get rid of. So no tattoos. That was the way to stamp it out. So I went back to my, my, my cell in Dallas County jail after the talk with my mom, and my dad, well, right after the jury sentenced me to life in prison and everybody I'm talking to in Dallas County is saying, Hey, you gotta, you gotta get into a gang. You can't, your mom and your dad can't save you from this. You have to get into a gang. The, the gang would be my family. But there was this one guy that was so different, this older black man named Mr. Jackson. And Mr. Jackson, you know, he's a career criminal. He's been in and out of prison all of his life. Um, but he's the most positive guy I've ever met in my life. And I was just I was just floored by this guy because he'd walk around with a smile on his face. Everywhere he went, he had a smile on his face. I'm like, how can you smile inside this this dungeon that we're in? So one morning he comes up and he's uh, he, he's got a cup of coffee in his hands, a smile on his face. He's like, he comes into my bunk. He's like, hey, listen, man been watching how you're doing with these knuckleheads and dummies talk about you got to get into a gang he said man don't listen to these fools he said you want to keep that promise you made to your mom and your dad then here's what prison's going to be like and he breaks it down for me he first of all he breaks down the racial dynamic in prison because everything in prison is about race he says it's all about race everything's about race you can't eat meals with people from a different race at the table none of that stuff the gangs that when you walk into prison, the gangs are all about race. And because you're white, the white gang's going to fight you first. And if you survive that, then the black gangs are coming. And and if you survive all that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. And he's telling me that you can survive all this, but it's going to be tough. But he tells me the truth about fighting. And he said, you're going to do a lot of fighting, but here's what you need to understand about fighting. He said, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And I remember when I heard that for the first time, I'm like, man, that means I don't have to win. And then, but it's so true in life because some days you're going to win and some days you're going to lose and, and it's okay to lose, but like Jackson's saying, you have to get back up and fighting, keep fighting because, you know, what I've learned in life, just from my observation is that people don't keep track of your wins and losses so much as whether or not you got back up and kept fighting. And so Jackson's saying, just get back up. But when he's telling me this back in 2009, man, I'm looking back at this guy like a deer in headlights, man. All this violence and terror and, about and to walk explain into. Explain something else. I was a novice, when, and I read the book, The Change Agent, mm-hmm. the name of your book. Incredible book. I, I will say it, it captivated me. It took me into – I've never truly understood the mind of an addict, and I think you do a great job of explaining where you were at as you went through that stuff. And then the courtroom scene – I mean, the book opens with that, and you're – uh, you know, we've had the opportunity, not in the same sense, but to be in a courtroom. And when you hear a verdict being read against you, I mean, it's, it, it just, I felt that with you. So incredible book, change agent. We'll put a link in the show notes, but you're in jail. You're getting ready to go to prison. Explain the difference. Cause I didn't know that until I read your book. Yeah, no, it's a great question because most people don't. And I probably wouldn't know it either if I didn't go through the process 
Jail is where you go before you go to prison. That's when you go if you've been arrested for something and you haven't been convicted of something. You know, jail is typically before the conviction. Prison is after the conviction. That's where you serve your sentence that you got while you were in jail waiting to go to trial. Now, jail is also a a depository for people that are waiting to go to prison because you get done with your trial and you have to wait for the prison bus to come pick you up in jail to take you to prison. Big difference between jail and prison. Another difference that this opens up um, in the minds of people that because the differentiation is so small is parole and probation. Probation is for someone that's trying to not go to prison. It's for something that you get whenever you say you went to court and they gave you a probation sentence instead of a real felony conviction. Probation is before prison. Parole is after prison. Parole is for someone that's been to prison and got out and they have a parole officer. Probation is for someone that hasn't been to prison yet and is trying to not go to prison. Big distinctions. Wouldn't have known it if I hadn't gone through the system myself. Yeah. All right. So you're in Dallas County Jail. That's where you meet Mr. Jackson yep. before you're sentenced to go or before you're transferred to prison. Yeah. And so the, this, this conversation that he has with me this day is one of the most consequential conversations I've ever had in my life. One of the biggest lessons I've ever learned in my life. And he's telling me to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, we're going to put three things in this pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. So here's where I first heard the story of the coffee bean. This is the summer of 2009 in Dallas County Jail, exactly 10 years before John Gordon and I write the book, The Coffee Bean, the summer of 2019. And so he's telling me, you know, carrots go into the pot of boiling water and become soft. They go in hard and firm, but the prison changes the carrot to this soft, mushy heap. They get beat, they get robbed, they may get raped, they may get killed. You don't want to be the carrot in the prison. He's telling me that the egg will go into the same pot of boiling water with this this hard outer shell and the soft liquid inside. But inside the shell, the soft liquid inside becomes hardened. Your heart actually becomes hardened when you become the egg. And he's telling me if your heart becomes hardened, you're incapable of giving or receiving love. And he said, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love in the place you're about to go to, you've become institutionalized. And you will not come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell will have swastikas tattooed all over it and tattoos all over it. And then he tells me that the coffee bean in the same pot of boiling water actually changes the water to coffee. It's the only thing that could change the water. He said the carrots are changed by the water. The eggs are changed by the water. But the, the coffee bean is the only thing that changed water. It is the change agent, the name of my book, the change agent. So... He's telling me, if you want to come back as someone your parents recognize, you want to be able to come back home, you have to be a coffee bean. In fact, that's the last four words this man ever said. The last four words he ever spoke to me on earth, be a coffee bean. And that made sense to me, guys, because I could get that, you know. And it's like when I go around telling the story now, anybody from five to 95 years old gets this allegory, right? Okay, life is tough. I'm going to have three choices of how I'm going to handle life today. And you can be all three in one day, by the way. You can be the carrot at one part of the day, the egg at another part, and the coffee bean at another part. But it made sense for me. Like, okay, I have a choice. I have power. The power is inside me. And if I can keep it inside me, then I can not only survive this prison experience, I'll thrive inside this prison experience. And y'all, prison was the hardest, most dangerous thing I've ever been through in my life. But that's the power of the story, right? If I could do it inside there, then you can do it out here. Because we all live in a pot of boiling water. Everybody's prison is relative in life. There's more than one way to be locked up. Physical prison is really just one form of prison. The hardest prison, by the way, that I've seen in my time after going through a real physical prison, the hardest prison to do time in is the prison in your mind. Because I honestly, I meet more people out here in the free world that are locked up 
than I ever did when I served time inside that prison. More people are imprisoned by their thoughts and by their things and their prejudices than by steel bars and barbed wire and concrete. And prison was an eye-open experience, y'all. It was rock and rolling, fighting from the word go. Spent the first two months fighting, lost most of my fights, but I knew I didn't have to win them. It didn't worry about the wins and losses. It was it was kind of a weird experience to wake up every day knowing that whenever you walk out your front door, someone wants to take your head off, physically take your head off, but you also knew that you didn't have to win. You just had to show up. You get kind of toughened to life by that, and it kind of makes you into an egg, and I, and I was becoming the egg. It took two months of, of constant fighting, and the last week of that was spent on the basketball court, earning respect from those guys playing sports. Sports is big, man. Sport... I'm going to tell you why I ended up on the rec yard playing sports to earn my respect finally. Because in America, sports is the great uniter. Sports can bring people together like nothing else can. I've seen stuff in sport. You know, in America, before there was Martin Luther King Jr., there was Jackie Robinson. Before you integrated lunch counters in this country, you integrated locker rooms in this country. So sports has this unifying power. And I it's like, you know what? I've always been a great athlete. Let me go out and try to play sports with these guys. And, and it was. It was the great equalizer in prison. I they didn't welcome was, you at first. I, mean, I, I know this part of the no, story man. from the book. Yeah, man. This is. It was the hardest basketball. I play basketball because at this point I'm fighting the black gangs, you know, just like Jackson said I would be. And um, so, you know, the basketball court is a place where the blacks control. No white guys were allowed in the basketball court. But I got myself into one of their games and I had to keep showing every day and playing in their games. And after a week of the most brutal basketball, and I'm talking about basketball, like it's not even five on five, but it's nine on one basketball. It's like my own teammates don't want me out there. And it's more like a hockey game than it is like basketball. It's, it's brutal. It's probably like playing basketball with you. I now. was going to say, that's what I feel like when I play against Brian. Some elbows <laughs> out there, yeah. But here's two things I learned about adversity that week on the basketball court. Adversity is never as bad as you think it's going to be, and you're always capable of way more than you think you are. This is where we let overthinking get in the way of overcoming. And I mean, how many times has that happened in life? If you want to be honest, that, man, yeah, I let overthinking get in the way of overcoming that situation because it just wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Let's go back to the pandemic for y'all. I mean, I was talking to Brian this morning about that. You know, you look at the pandemic, everything's going on. You're like, oh, no, this is going to be bad. But then you realize that there's opportunities in there to grow. And, you know, one of the stories I talk about with companies when I go around you know, since the pandemic and, you know, your company is actually a good company to talk about this with is the story about um, Post and Kellogg cereal. In the 1920s, there were two cereal companies in America, Post and Kellogg's. Post was big. They were massive. The biggest cereal company, man. Kellogg's was real small. They had a small market share of America. They could never compete with Post. But in, in October of 1929, the stock market crashes, the Great Depression begins. And when that happens, Post this big zero company, they quit doing the things that made them great out of fear and doubt. They saw a lens of fear and fear distorts any image you look at with it because fear is a liar. Fear makes you see things that aren't there. It makes you believe things that aren't real. And in this lens of fear, Post quit marketing. They quit running radio ads. They fired a lot of people. They laid a, people, laid a lot of people off. They basically hoarded the money they had because they lived in this world of fear. Kellogg's, in the same event in time in history, they saw what Post was doing, and they looked at it differently. They looked at it as an opportunity, the opportunity and the adversity. So they put more money into radio, put more money into marketing. The little bit of money they had, they're pushing it to the middle of the table. You know, they're, they're all in. They, uh, they invented a new cereal during this time. They did research and development, invented a new cereal called Rice Krispies. And by 1933, four years into the Great Depression, 
Kellogg's overtook Post as the biggest huh. cereal company in America, and they've never released it yet. They've been the top cereal company since 1933, 30, 30, you know? So it's... It's that whole lesson of the Post and Kellogg's dynamic that I saw a lot of going on to the pandemic that I experienced inside of that prison. You know, I could wake up every day and view it through the lens of fear. I could view it through the lens of an opportunity. And and that has taught that has served me well in life, you know, not just in prison, but but even after prison, because, you know, for the next, you know, I spent seven years and three months in that maximum security penitentiary in Beaumont, Texas, the Mark Stiles unit, one of the toughest prisons in Texas. And the transformation that I made inside myself and became that coffee bean ended up getting the attention of the parole board. And on November 16, 2015, the parole interview went really well. And the lady from parole was like, hey, could you do out there in the free world what you've done inside this prison? Because the attention that they that I got of them was that I didn't just change myself. I changed an entire prison. They heard good reports about this guy that goes around and positivity follows and November 16, 2015, I got to walk out of a Texas prison. My parents were waiting out there for me. Now I'm not free. I mean, it, I'm a long way from being a free man. I'm a, I got a little time left on parole in Texas. I'm on parole to the year 2073. Oof. So I got <laughs> 2074. We're going to have a party. Yeah, that's it. Well, in 2000, good thing is, is that two years after I'm done with my sentence, I can vote. I can get my, my voter rights back. So 2075, here I come. Not even a presidential year. It's crazy, uh, yeah. man. I gotta wait to I gotta wait to seventy six. So, but but no, I walked out of prison, and um, you know, with this mindset of something I've just been through, and it's part of the story that I tell people that pain is relative. We all experience pain, and you can't tell somebody their pain is less than your pain. If you say it's the worst pain in the world, it's the worst pain in the world. But let's take that commonality of pain that we all experience and figure out. How do we turn that pain into something positive? How do we use that? Pain can be used as a perspective in life. I tell people this all the time. You know, your pain can be a way that you judge what a good day and a bad day looks like. Right, right. Because in my life, I wake up and my feet don't hit the cold concrete floor of the prison cell. I'm having a pretty good day, you know? And that's just from what waking up, you know? Because I've got this perspective of what a bad day looks like. But we all have that perspective, you know? We know what a bad day is. A bad day is when someone dies in your family right? or a relationship falls apart, a divorce, a, a job, you lose your job, you get fired, a career change. I mean, these are things that are really the measurements of a bad day. Most bad days aren't bad. It's like sitting in traffic. You know, one day the traffic bothers you, the next day you're sitting in traffic, it doesn't bother you. Is it the traffic? No, it's oh, you. perspective. It's perspective. Yep. And that's what I try to encourage people to tap into is this perspective. And, and I've been going around sharing the coffee bean message all over the country and all over the world now. And it's caught on because... Everybody is dealing with this pot of boiling water called life. So I want to talk about some of the impact you've had. I mean, I, this podcast is Impact Without Limits, right? And, and it's all about how we can have impact in the lives of others. And I want to talk about post-prison, but uh, during prison, the, the two things that jumped out at me as you talked through that. One, Mr. Jackson. I mean, the impact he has had, not just on your life, but all the lives that you know, you now come in contact with just by one living and being positive and two being willing to share that story with you. Absolutely. And this is uh, one of the the most amazing dynamics of this story is this man this, that I call Mr. Jackson, because by the way, that's not his real name. Right. And I never knew his real name till recently. And we can get into that too. It's a really fascinating story. But the only name I knew him by was Muhammad because Muhammad that I met in Dallas County jail 
is a Muslim convert. And these guys, when they go to prison and they convert to Islam, they give up their government name. Like my government name is Damon West. You're Brian Carton. You know, it's, 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 it's the thing that right. you, your parents give you at birth. And so he gives that up and becomes Muhammad. Like Cassius Clay, he goes to prison and becomes Muhammad Ali when he walks out. This guy's name was Muhammad. And Muhammad, he he took me in in a world that says everything, that he's supposed to do everything opposite of that. You know, I'm a white, middle-class Catholic guy that's well-educated. It's in the system. I, I don't look and speak like anybody in there. He's a black Muslim man from the streets of Dallas. There's no reason why this, this guy and I are interacting. But he makes the choice to bridge that gap and reach over and grab me and say, hey, let me help you out through this process. And that's the thing about life is everybody is coming in need. Everybody needs help. The three hardest words for people to say are, I need help, you know, but I'm at a place in life and I meet this guy that I'm willing to listen because I'm looking for guidance and everything that I'm running into is negative, negative, negative. And I tell people all the time that in my life, God never just reached his hand down on my head and said, Damon, you're healed. Man, in my life, the way it's worked is God's put people in my life. And these people, when I was younger, were like my mom and my dad. They were like the teachers and coaches and people of Port Arthur that helped raise me. And then as I got on further in life, on the road to life, they came in different forms and sizes and shapes. And, you know, one of them was a black Muslim man in Dallas County Jail. Proof that God can use any messenger to get through to you, but you're going to have to be receptive to all of God's messengers. And so... I was receptive to Mr. Jackson and his coffee bean message. And his message is now, I mean, it's carried around the globe. I mean, it's gone all around this planet. I mean, there's people all over the the world that talk about this coffee bean message. And it all came from these two guys having this chance encounter in Dallas County Jail in 2009. Yeah. That's, that's just an amazing story. And, and then your impact just in the way you lived in prison. Um, I know from, from the book and from talking with you, I mean, you had an impact on, on guys that wanted to hate you, right? That, mm-hmm. that end up liking you or at least respecting you. Sure. And, and the way you lived your life ended up impacting the way they lived their lives, not by something you said to them, but just them witnessing the way you lived. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing. Your actions speak louder than anything. Your actions scream who you really are. And so they saw this guy that, you know, in prison, they saw this guy that took all the—, the the most fierce punishment that could be thrown at him. And and at the end of all that, he'd come out smiling because that was like the first rule of being a coffee bean anyway, is smiling, smile everywhere you go. Your smile is powerful, man. And my smile was able to change the energy in every room I went into. And, and I figured that that smile was probably one of the things that saved me in there. And Jackson, but he told me this, Jackson had, you know, he was such an intelligent man. He told me in Dallas County Jail, he said, you either infect a room when you walk into it with negative energy that you put out, or you're going to affect the room with your positive energy that you put out. And where you're going, you need to use your positive energy as a weapon. You need to smile everywhere you go. Because if you walk around trying to look tough, like one of the other guys around you that wants to look hard, you're going to attract those other guys to you, those hard guys, those mean, hardened criminals that want to kill you. You'll attract them to you. But if you walk around positive, you'll attract the other coffee beans. And it was the law of attraction that I used inside that place that Mr. Jackson told me about that attracted other coffee beans to me. And that is a protective wall that you create around you. And the more coffee beans that you create, the more positive the area is around you. All Mr. Jackson. Dale, what's, what did dad teach us? Like draws like. Like draws like. Yeah. Right? You're going to attract. And, you know, we talked about that. We didn't know what that meant growing up. A perfect example. Yep. So... 
and this is this is a great conversation. I think we're going to make this a two episodes session. So for those of you listening, this part of the story has been Damon up through prison. I want to talk about what happens when you get out. So that'll be the next episode. Fantastic. This is the Threads Army reminding you that faith looks up, hope looks ahead, and love looks all around to see whom it can help. Good day.